This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for the hour, we're going to tell stories about mothers. Some are going to be from some pretty famous people, and some some not-so-famous people. I'm going to tell a story about my mom or two. And we wanted to start off with one of our favorite segments that we'd ever done on this show, the great country legend Merle Haggard, who, by the way, was born and died on the same day, April 6th. He was born in 1937 and died in 2016. And he led a tough life when he was young, and it was mostly his doing. He was rebellious. He didn't listen to his mom. And my goodness, he would come to have regrets about that. He was in and out of prison, and you can tell from the clip you're about to hear that Merle really never talked about this with his mom. Let's take a listen to Merle Haggard from the grave talking about what he put his mom through. I can't imagine what she went through. Now I've got six children of my own. I can't, I really, it's not just a phrase. I really can't imagine what she went through. It must have been awful. It must have been awful. And yet, like so many moms, well, his mom just kept loving him. And that's what moms do, that unconditional love that moms give their children. It's a remarkable thing. And it turns out Merle's first hit song is really an ode to his mom. It's a story about his mom and himself and their relationship. And I think the reason it was such a hit is not many boys and girls haven't had that rebellious moment in time with their mom. Some come to regret it. Some don't. Hopefully you're the one and the kind who does come to regret it and reconcile. But let's take a listen to Merle's first hit song. The first thing I remember knowing Was a lonesome whistle blowing And a youngin's dream of growing up to ride On a freight train leaving town Not knowing where I'm bound no one could change my mind but mama tried the one and only rebel child from a family meek and mild my mama seemed to know what lay in store despite of all my Sunday learning towards the bad I kept on turning till mama couldn't hold me anymore and I turned 21 in prison doing life without parole no one could steer me right, but Mama tried, Mama tried, Mama tried to raise me better, but her pleading I denied, that leaves only me to blame, cause Mama tried. Dear old daddy, rest his soul, left my mom a heavy load. She tried so very hard to fill his shoes Working hours without rest Wanted me to have the best She tried to raise me right, but I refused And I turned 21 in prison Doing life without parole No one could steer me right, but Mama tried Mama tried, Mama tried to raise me better But her pleading I denied that leaves only me to blame Cause mama tried And there you have it It's a perfect song 
a lament, and also a love note to his own mom. And that's why that song was a hit for Merle. It just struck a universal chord. Whether you're a country guy, a rock guy, a classical guy, it doesn't matter. It's a story. And here's another story, this one from the sports world. Kevin Durant, well, he was the son of a single mom in a suburb outside Washington, D.C., Prince George's County, Maryland, if you're familiar with the area. And Kevin would come on to the scene at the University of Texas as a rising star, but no one knew how good he'd be. And he's at the Golden State Warriors now, and there are very few players like him, very few who conduct themselves like he does on the court, too. Well, he won the MVP award in 2014, and he thanked a whole lot of people, and it was a beautiful speech. But he saved the most important person for last, his mom, Wanda. I don't think you know what you did. You had my brother when you were 18 years old. Three years later, I came out. We were stacked, the odds were stacked against us. Single parent with two boys by the time you were 21 years old. Everybody told us we weren't supposed to be here. We moved from apartment to apartment by ourselves. One of the best memories I had is when we moved into our, our first apartment. No, no bed, no furniture, and we just all sat in, in the living room and just hugged each other. Because we, that's what we, we thought we made it. And when, you, when something good happens to you, I don't know about you guys, but I tend to look back to what brought me here. And you wake me up in the middle of the night in the summer times, making me run up a hill, making me do push-ups, screaming at me from the sideline of my games at eight or nine years old. We wasn't supposed to be here. You made us believe. You kept us off the street, put clothes on our backs, food on the table. When you didn't eat, you made sure we ate. You went to sleep hungry. You sacrificed for us. You the real MVP. You couldn't have grown up much different and from very different places than Merle Haggard and Kevin Durant. Haggard from Oklahoma. Great Depression, they move out to Bakersfield, California. Okies. Real tough life. Both of them tough lives. What did they both have in common? A tougher mom. A mom who loved them both unconditionally. To all you moms out there listening, much more to come. To all you sons and daughters, well, just hug your mom. Tell them you love her. This is Our American Stories. More stories to come. This 
is Our American Stories, our special Mother's Day celebration. We want to bring you a story now that regularly moves entire auditoriums filled with school kids and young adults to tears. And his name is Mark Merrow. And you may know his name. He's a retired amateur boxer. He was a professional wrestler. You may know him by his ring name, Johnny B. Bad. And by the way, Johnny B. Bad, well, he ended up doing some bad things. Drugs, all kinds of stuff. You're about to hear the story. But today, this former pro wrestler tours the country speaking to kids and trying to inspire them to live better lives. Mark's parents divorced when he was just eight years old, and his mom worked two jobs to feed him and his siblings. Here's just part of the story that Mark tells school kids. See, the greatest gift my mother ever gave me, she believed in me. I have overdosed on drugs on three occasions where I should have been dead. But I believe I was kept here for a reason. You show me your friends, I will show you your future. How do I know this? I hung out with losers and I became the biggest loser of them all because I gave up everything I dreamt about as a little boy because of who I chose to surround myself with. My friends would drive me home at two, three, four in the morning. We'd be drunk and high, laughing in the car. We'd pull up in front of my house in New York. they go, Mark, Mark, the light's on. I go, oh man, my mother's up. See, my mom wouldn't go to bed until she knew her son was still alive. I'd walk in, she'd say, hi, Mark, how was your night? I go, it was good, mom, I'm just gonna go to bed. She goes, can I, can I talk to you for a minute? I go, mom, I'm tired, I'm just gonna go to bed. She goes, Mark, I haven't seen you all day and all night. Can I please talk to you? I said, man, just leave me alone. You bug me. I'd slam my bedroom door on the one person who believed in me. I was on a worldwide tour when we were wrestling overseas in Japan. After my wrestling match, I went upstairs in my hotel room and I fell asleep. There was a knock at my door at three o'clock in the morning. I got out of bed and I looked through the safety window and I could see it was a Japanese promoter. So I opened the door and he said, Mark, you need to call home. There's been an emergency. I went and got on the hotel room phone. I called back to the United States and said, hey, what's going on? They said, Mark, I don't know how to tell you this. I said, just tell me what happened. All of a sudden they started crying. They go, Mark, I can't tell you. I said, just say it. They said, Mark, your mother died. I just threw the phone down. I ran out of my hotel room. I took the elevator to the lobby, and when the doors opened up, I just ran out into the street. I mean, there was no cars, there was no people. It was three o'clock in the morning. And I walked down the middle of a street in Hiroshima, Japan, and I remember looking up and just saying, Mom, I am so sorry. I flew home for her funeral, and I was so nervous to walk up to her casket, so I just stood way in the back. And I kept looking from a distance. I kept thinking to myself, Mom, please wake up. Please get up. And then I finally got the nerve to walk up to her. And as I got closer, I could see my mom for the first time. I mean, she was so beautiful. She, she was dressed in white. I mean, she looked like an angel. And I just stood over and I said, Mom, you are my hero. Everything I am, everything I hope to be was because of you. You loved me so much. You gave me a life. You're the only one that ever believed in me. How did I repair? 
by getting drunk, by getting high, by getting stupid, by hanging out with losers, for what? All she ever wanted to do was talk to me. I wish I could talk to you now, Mom. I wish you could see what I'm doing. Why couldn't I have been a better son? We are defined by our choices. But if you surround yourself with people involved in drugs and alcohol and pills, it's a dead end. I'm not here to preach to you. I'm here to tell you I lived that life. It leads to broken hearts, broken relationships, broken dreams, and death. For what? To get high? If you have a mother or a father, when you go home, tell them how much you love them. See, my whole life was about being rich and famous. I had to be a millionaire. I had to win the race. I had to win the race to expense my marriage, my family, my friends for what? To be all alone in the world? I learned what is truly important, and that is how precious this gift of life is and our families and how quickly it can be taken away. See, I no longer live in time. I live in moments. See, it's not what's in your pocket that matters. It's what's in your heart that truly matters. Love, love is just a word until somebody comes along and gives it meaning. You, you're the meaning. And thanks to that, Mark. And we talked to Mark earlier this week. We caught up with him. He goes around the country and gives these motivational speeches to kids around all around the United States. And by the way, go to YouTube and watch this video and just see the reaction of the kids. Uh, just watch it. It's very profound. If you're a parent, really watch it and think about how you're talking to your kid and, and what you're saying. Moms, dads, we got to love our kids as best we can. And kids, you got to love your parents back. We caught up with Mark after he gave a talk at his school and asked him if he's surprised that this video has been viewed almost a billion times across the world. You know, I, I guess I, I really was. I mean, obviously, I was speaking at schools before the video ever came out, and of course, I saw kids crying, you know, uh, when I'm there live. Uh, in fact, I did a school today where there were so many kids crying, and, and the principal, when he went up to at the end of the presentation to uh, talk to the kids, he, kept, he was crying so much he couldn't even talk. The principal of the school for 23 years said he's never been emotional like that in front of his kids. But, you know, I, I guess, you know, by touching a student's heart is how you change their mind. Our, our, Lee, our smartphone has outsmarted us. It really has. And we have to go back to the fundamentals. You know, we could talk about suicide prevention, substance abuse, bullying at schools. But what it really comes down to is there is a breakdown of the family in our country. And this brings people back to the realization that we all need love. The one thing we all want more than anything in this world is love. And there's no greater love than a mother's unconditional love. And finally, on this Mother's Day, we asked Mark to share some more memories of his amazing mother, Diane. As a young boy, she always encouraged me to, you know, to uh, uh, dream big and, and write down my dreams and go after those dreams and goals in my life and never give up. And, and she, just, she just had these visions of me becoming this amazing person. You know, I remember when I was little, she'd say, you're going to be a great scientist. You're going to be a, a great doctor. You're going to be, you're going to have the cure for cancer. You know, she just made me feel like I could do anything, you know. And uh, then, you know, she'd be at all my sporting events, uh, encouraging me, screaming from the sidelines to the point where it was embarrassing that my, that was my mother doing that, you know. But, you know, as I got older and I, I really 
fell away from the family unit and started to, you know, we, we become who we surround ourselves with. And unfortunately, I, I, I got hooked up with a lot of bad friends that, um, you know, were into drugs and alcohol and, and, and doing a lot of bad things in life. And uh, eventually got addicted to cocaine and, 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 and drugs and partying. And But, you know, Lee, in a, in a, in a strange way, you know, I... I believe she knows what I'm doing. I mean, I, I became the man she always envisioned me to be. And that's the greatest thing about this story, is even though she didn't physically see it here on Earth, I became that person she always knew I would be. Through all the heartache, the pain, the tears, the, the screaming, the yelling at her, and the name-calling, all the horrible things I did to that lady, and she always believed in me. So Mother's Day is very special for me. <laughs> And it's special for all of us. And again, that's Mark Miro. And go to YouTube and put in his name, Mark, M-E-R-O. And just watch it with your kids because it'll, it'll move you. And it'll move them and it'll bring you closer together. And, and uh, yeah, it's social media and it's YouTube. But you can use these things as forces for good. It doesn't have to be junk there all the time. We're not Luddites here at Our American Stories. We, we love the technology, but it shouldn't replace human contact and I can only just remember my last moments of my mom around a radio. Uh, she was at a, at, a, at a nursing home. We were very close. I never really was the rebellious one. We had, I had older brothers who did that. I was the youngest boy, so I just had a, we had a special bond. And I just remember sneaking in more menthols for her so she could smoke outside in the cold. And we could put on this little old battery-powered radio and listen to her favorite music on the AM radio, watching her smoking those little more menthols. Sneaking in a steak for my mom and just being close to her all the way through, especially having the time when she passed, which I did. And I'm so glad I did. I just took off, man. I checked out. Best time I ever spent. And when we come back, more stories about moms celebrating Mother's Day. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and our special Mother's Day celebration. And not everyone has a great mom. Some people, adopted people, struggle with who their mom was if they didn't know. And we are not inclined to describe all family units the same because they aren't. Not everybody has a good father. Some people never know their father. Same with a mother. And so we respect all kinds of situations in which people find themselves, struggle through, rise out of. And this next story we bring you from a woman named Myra Duran. It's a spoken word poem. She was adopted at birth. For years I looked in the mirror, wondering who I look like, where I got my features, my hair, my brown eyes, my lips, and yes, even these oversized hips. Then I would immediately look 
away and become enraged at the simple fact that I would crave to know you. Birth mother, I tried to hate you. I mean, why should I care? Did you? I would ask myself, how could a mother do this? Give up her own baby girl. How dare you send me off into this cruel world by herself? I would be lying if I didn't admit that this was the source of my rebellion, running from my thoughts, not feeling like I was good enough. I mean, did my father even know that I existed? Why did you give me away so many unanswered questions? But you know what, Earth Mother? I stand here today. And if I could say one thing to you, it would be thank you. See, I came to the realization that what you did for me was so selfless, so courageous. So if I could say one thing, it would be I love you. And I want you to know if you ever feared that I would be angry, I was. But now that has turned into appreciation. If you ever feared that I would be disappointed, I was. But then you became my courage. If you ever feared that I wouldn't be loved, I am so glad to tell you that I was. The woman that you gave me to held on to me so strong. She has been a pure reflection of unconditional acceptance. If you ever worried that I would be neglected, who hasn't? If you ever feared that I would go hungry, I did, but now I have grown to appreciate every meal. If you ever feared that I would struggle, I did, but so do butterflies. And when they push forward, they are so beautiful and are able to fly. Birth mother, I am doing just fine. See, one day God whispered into my spirit, my child, you look just like me. So I stopped running. These soul wounds are now healing. He has changed my perspective. No more questions. And I met the very evidence of your hope because God is love. Birth mother, you took a chance on chance and he intercepted. The one who knit me together in your womb has kept his promise, the father to the fatherless. He said that I was fearfully and wonderfully made. And no, I was not a mistake. So now I come unashamed. Now I ask myself, how were you able to be so brave for my own sake? How were you able to look into my eyes and have the strength to say goodbye, to give me my right to love and be loved. Birth mother, even if there are no regrets, I'm not seeking an apology. You have given me the simple ability to breathe. Thank you, birth mother, for choosing me so whoever you are, please take pride because you chose love.
you chose life. <laughs> and what a remarkable performance. What a remarkable story. And what a remarkable piece of writing. I came unashamed. And she did experience unconditional acceptance, indeed, unconditional love by a mother, just not her birth mother. And again, that happens to so many people in this country. A man comes into someone's life and suddenly, that's the father. Adoptions, people who leave, people in prisons, people who die, and people who just abandon their kids. But love creeps in. And those people are mothers and fathers to so many who step in and fill the void. This next story is one from Stan Swim, and he and his wife Michelle's adoption journey. Here's Stan honoring the birth mother of his adopted child, Sam, and telling the story of meeting them both. Drove out to this church building, and uh, as we walked into that room, there was a young woman sitting there in a black dress and a, a red top, and you could tell she'd been crying for a long time because she had stripes of tears all the way down the front of her sweater. She was holding a little boy in a blue blanket, had her mom and dad sitting behind her. And uh, I don't remember very many specifics, but I do remember a couple of things. As the, the conversation, if you can call it that, kind of progressed, the girl finally collected herself. She hadn't looked at us really the whole night. She finally looked up and she she looked at her dad and she said, I, I don't know if I can do this, can you help me? And so her dad lifted her baby out of her arms and placed him into my wife's arms. She looked at me and she said, I want you to know that I'm doing this because I want my son to have a dad. And I'd just seen how her dad felt about her. And you could tell they were really, really close. And the more I've reflected on that moment, the more I've realized how much she understood that I didn't. And there's a handful of things that I could list. One of them was just even taking my responsibility as a father seriously. But she also realized something else that I think is lost a lot today and that is it was not about her and it wasn't about me and it wasn't about Michelle it was about that little boy and what was right for him and for a 19 year old to have that figured out when I as a 29 year old was still probably too focused on myself was as humbling an experience as I think I've ever had I hope, I hope that I live up to what she intended. I know for sure I haven't done it perfectly. And you were listening to Stan Swim. And again, another tribute to a mom. And what a thing to do. What a thing to do. And beautifully done, Stan. And thanks for sharing that with us. And again, we tell every kind of father and mother story here on this show. Heck, we're one of the only shows in the country that talks about guys who've been in prisons and come out because we think it's important. You'll hear a, a line or two in a newspaper about prison reform. Um, but those are real life human beings inside those prisons and we care. 
um, and families across this country have have sons and daughters in those prisons. And it breaks everyone's heart when that happens. Uh, and sometimes, well, people just need a break in life. Stan Swim's story, also Myra Duran's story, here on Our American Story, celebrating Mother's Day. More when we continue. Turn to our American stories in our special Mother's Day celebration. And by the way, if you have a story about your mom you want to share with us, or your dad for that matter, send them to ouramericannetwork.org because each and every year we celebrate both days with stories good and sometimes rough because not everybody has a perfect, happy, little, tidy childhood with a mother and father right there all the time. Again, send your mother and father's stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Tiffany Jenkins is a wife and a mother of three. She's acquired a huge social media following on her blog, Juggling the Jenkins, where her videos receive millions of views. Tiffany wrote a highly successful memoir, High Achiever, the shocking true story of one addict's double life. Here's the teaser summary on the back of her book. Quote, I wasn't always a terrible person. In fact, there was a point when I was captain of my high school cheerleading squad, Valentine Queen, and student body president. Once word got out that I was withdrawing from opiates on the floor of a jail cell, people in my town were shocked, to say the least. Not because of the 27 felonies I'd acquired or the nature of my crimes, but mainly because my boyfriend was a sheriff deputy, and his friends, our friends, were the ones who'd arrested me. I spent 120 days in jail where every officer knew what I'd done to their brother in blue and despised me for it. I made my way to a residential treatment center, and eventually I began the process of recovering from a life of addiction. Leaving rehab wasn't the end of my story. Instead, It was the beginning of a chapter more beautiful and surprising than I could have ever imagined. Here's Tiffany Jenkins with the rest of her story and what it means to be a good mom. You know what I want to talk about today? I want to talk about what it means to be a good mom, okay? Because listen, if you look on social media and YouTube, okay, let's take YouTube for example. They have tons of videos of families announcing pregnancies to their loved ones, right? And it's always so joyous, and everybody's so excited and screaming and yelling, and they're like, oh my God, finally, thank you, look at these little booties, I'm gonna have a grandkid, okay? That was not how my pregnancy announcement went at all. I had been living in a halfway house for two months, and I started dating this guy. And I got an overnight pass, okay, one weekend. I got one overnight pass. I'm not gonna go into detail about what happened on the overnight pass, 
But let's just say that two weeks later, my body started acting a little weird. I didn't have a job or a car at the time. So I scraped together some quarters and walked my butt down to the Dollar Tree and bought a pregnancy test and guess what? There was a baby in my belly. I took a pregnancy test in the bathroom of the halfway house I was living at with six other women. And when the second line popped up, I collapsed on the floor and lost my mind. It was not joyous. I was not excited. I was terrified. I had just started gaining trust back with my family. What the hell was I gonna tell them? How was I gonna tell the owner of the halfway house that I abused the one overnight pass they finally gave me? What the hell was I gonna do? I couldn't even take care of myself. How was I gonna take care of a child? I was terrified. I prayed out and I said, listen, technically, physically, I know why this happened, but like spiritually and mentally, I don't know why this happened. Please help me, what am I supposed to do? I can't have this baby. And it was in that moment that I realized suddenly I wanted this baby more than I had ever wanted anything in my entire life. I told my sister, she was basically like, okay, you're an idiot. Um, I told the owner of the halfway house and he could have kicked me out, but he didn't. He let me live there and pay rent until I could get on my feet. So I married the man who got me pregnant five months after we started dating. And I continued to live in the halfway house up until near the end of my pregnancy. My recovery didn't stop just because I was pregnant. I had to keep working on myself. I got a job, busted my butt, got a car, we got an apartment, and my son was born on my birthday. It was the greatest gift that I've ever received. When my son was six months old, I found out I was pregnant with the cloister. She burst into the world, a colicky fury of tears and chaos, and I got postpartum depression. Two weeks after she was born, my bonus daughter came to live with us full time and I was battling postpartum depression full on. I went from being a single, sexy bachelorette living in a halfway house to a married mother of three in the span of two years. Okay? When it comes to motherhood, I have no clue what the hell I'm doing. I don't. I don't. In the beginning, when I was suffering from postpartum depression, I used to go to social media for support and I, you know, to try to see what other people were doing because I had no clue. And I quickly realized that it seemed like everybody else had their life together while mine was crumbling. Everybody's home looked beautiful while mine looked like a hurricane just ripped through the living room. All the moms were posing with their babies looking so perfect and wonderful while I wanted to leave mine in the crib and run out the front door and never come back. I can't explain what that did to me internally as a person. <laughs> it made me feel like a failure. It made me feel ashamed and embarrassed. It made me feel like maybe I wasn't meant to be a mom. There was one day one day especially, where I resented my children just for existing. I didn't want to take care of them anymore. I didn't want to be a mom anymore. So I called my doctor, crying, and I said, is it bad that I don't want the kids anymore? 
and they said come into the office right now. And they got me in that day and the doctor and I worked on a recovery plan for me. Once I started to feel better, I started to write. And I wrote for numerous reasons. I wrote because it was really therapeutic for me to tell my truth and to get it out of my head and onto paper. And I chose to share my writing because everywhere I looked, everything looked so perfect. So I thought maybe if there's just one person out there who's feeling the same way as me, they can read what I've written and see that they're not alone. And that's where Juggling the Jenkins was born. A good mom is not measured by her ability to keep a clean home. Some people have more money than other people. Some people have more possessions than other people, but none of that matters. Life is gonna go by like this. It's gonna be over before you know it. And I promise you that it is not gonna say anywhere in your obituary, her house was really damn clean. We gotta stop stressing about the little stuff. We gotta stop wasting time beating ourselves up over the little stuff and start spending more time creating memories with our kids, taking them places, putting our phones down, chilling with them, going outside. When they come up to you and they say, mommy, will you play with me? Instead of saying, ugh, just a second, just get up and play with them. Because I can promise you that neither of you will ever regret that decision. I have to remind myself of this daily. I'm the queen of, in just a minute, babe, I'm the queen. <laughs> I do it all day long. So I have to remind myself that that minute will never come. And I know that, and they know that. So it is up to me to make the minutes count now. What makes a good mom? I don't think there's one answer. A good mom is somebody who doesn't spend hours obsessing about how they aren't good enough. A good mom is somebody who recognizes that they have a problem and does whatever they can to fix it, whether it be addiction, alcoholism, anger, depression, whatever it is, is recognizing that you have a problem, realizing that nobody's gonna come save you and doing whatever you can to make sure that you are the best possible mom for those kids. Taking action makes a good mom. But it all boils down to love. Being a shining example to the kids of what love is about. Showing them love and showing others love. As often as possible. That's, that's what makes a good mom. And that was Tiffany Jenkins you were listening to. And what a voice. And so straight. Straight as an arrow. And by the way, that line in the beginning, what was I going to do? I can't take care of myself. How am I going to take care of this child? You know, that reminds me of the narrator in There Goes My Life by Kenny Chesney. If you remember the lines, all he could think about was, I'm too young for this, got my whole life ahead. Hell, I'm just a kid myself. How am I going to raise one? By the way, we're never ready to raise a kid. I've had so many people say, I'm not ready. Well, you're never ready. And she jumped in and raised this child. And what great advice. Uh, and moms, good ones, uh, and good fathers do this too. Show them love and show others love as often as possible. I have no idea what I'm doing, she also said. And you know what? None of us do. 
And people like love to give a lot of advice about parenting, but it's not easy. And if anybody had the formula down, well, share it with the world. You'll be a billionaire. Um, it's no duck walk. But that advice, love others and yours as often as possible. About as good as it gets. Mother's Day stories, Tiffany Jenkins' story, here on Our American Story. Get more at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. This is Our American Stories, and we're celebrating Mother's Day for the hour. And today we're doing it with a guy who wrote a whole book about his mom. And that's a mama's boy, if ever I've heard one. And I'm one too. My mom passed four years ago in a month. His book is titled Promises I Made My Mother, and it's written by Sam Haskell, who's been named one of the most innovative and influential people in television, a top 25. He was the executive vice president of worldwide head of television for the venerable William Morris Agency. Has represented such stars as Dolly Parton, Kathy Lee Gifford, Ray Romano, Whoopi Goldberg, George Clooney, and oversaw the packaging and helped make happen a lot of your favorite shows. The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Everybody Loves Raymond, Lost, Murphy Brown, Live with Regis and Kathy Lee, The King of Queens, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and many others. And Sam, before we dig into the book, what I want to do, and we'll be interspersing this through the show, is some pretty famous people talking about their mom and the influence their mom had on their lives. This is Kevin Durant a couple of years back. He had just won the MVP when he was playing at the Oklahoma City Thunder. And uh, this is what he had to say about his mom. I don't think you know what you did. You had my brother when you were 18 years old. Three years later, I came out. The odds were stacked against us. Single parent with two boys. By the time we were 21 years old, everybody told us we weren't supposed to be here. We moved from apartment to apartment by ourselves. One of the best memories I had is when we moved into our, our first apartment. No, no bed, no furniture. And we just all sat in, in the living room and just hugged each other because we... That's what we, we thought we made it. When, you, when something good happens to you, I don't know about you guys, but I tend to look back to what brought me here. You wake me up in the middle of the night in the summer times, making me run up a hill, making me do push-ups, screaming at me from the sideline of my games at eight or nine years old. We wasn't supposed to be here. You made us believe. You kept us off the street put clothes on our backs, food on the table. When you didn't eat, you made sure we ate. You went to sleep hungry. You sacrificed for us. You're the real MVP. The real MVP of Kevin Durant's life, his mom, your MVP, clearly, Sam. Tell us about who your mom is. Where was she born? Tell us a little bit about her life. My mother was born July 17th, 1925, which is almost 91 years ago. She was the third of four children to 
my grandparents, uh, Hezekiah and Mary Kirkpatrick. She was uh, the first daughter, so she was doted on quite a bit. But being born in the pre-Depression era to a family that didn't have a lot put her in a position of responsibility at an early age. And then her little sister came along four years later, my, my Aunt Betty. I've, I've lost them all now. I, I lost my mother 30 years ago this month to cancer. I uh, don't pass a single day that I don't think about her. But she was really outstanding, and I think my grandparents recognized that at an early age, that she was exceptionally bright. Her oldest brother, who was 12 years her senior, would walk her to school, and they put her to school when she was five years old because she was so smart. They didn't put her in kindergarten. They just put her right in first grade. And she graduated high school at the top of her class as valedictorian at the age of 16. My grandparents could not afford to send her to college, so she applied for a scholarship from the Air Force Cadet Nursing Corps. And they sent her on a full ride because of her her grades and her outstanding you know, not only extracurricular um, activities, but her outstanding academic career. And she went to the University of Tennessee and got her degree in nursing and was stationed at uh, Brooklyn Air Force Base Hospital in Mobile, Alabama. This was now in, we were in the mid-50s. My father was from Cincinnati, Ohio, and he had just been flown in from Korea with a broken leg, and he was put on her floor at the Air Force Base Hospital in Mobile. And uh, they met and married and had me and uh, then had my brothers after my mother insisted that they move back to her hometown of Amory, Mississippi. So my brothers were born in Mississippi and uh, I have that little Alabama in my background and uh, was raised in Amory and, you know, surrounded by her beautiful family. We would spend the summers going to see my father's family in the north. My mother married a Yankee. And uh, we would spend the summers on, you know, northern Lake Michigan and the and the cottages that my father's family had up there. I had an idyllic childhood. I had a mother who loved me more than anything in the world. And, you know, my parents were able to give us things that their parents had not been able to give them. But um, especially my mother. My grandparents all died when I was very young, so I really never knew knew my grandparents, but every April 3rd, which was my grandmother Kirkpatrick's birthday, my mother would take us to the cemetery and she would tell us stories about her grandmother. Storytelling has always been a very important part of my life. I am told that I'm a pretty good storyteller and I I love sharing my stories, but my mother started it because she was the one who told us the stories in the beginning, the stories upon which we would base everything in our lives and stories that taught us about love and faith and hope and character. She would give us examples of these principles at different crossroads in our lives and would make it very obvious to us if we were going down a road she didn't think we should be going. And it was always followed with a correction and a story. Well, hold that thought, Sam, because we're going into a break right here. <laughs> okay. And one of the things we talk about endlessly in, in on this show is the power of stories. Yeah. The imitative power, the teaching power. Look, as old as the ages, stories were there from the Bible on. Uh, Jesus Christ himself. Not a lot of lectures, a whole lot of stories. When we come back, more with Sam Haskell, his mom, a celebration of her life 
her story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Sam Haskell talking about his book, Promises I Made My Mother, Mary Kirkpatrick Haskell's life story, and Sam's in the end, and stories about moms and dads are in the end also, always almost, stories about ourselves. And before we dig back in, as I had promised, we're going to be playing clips from other folks and their reflections on their mom. This is James Lipton at the Actors Studio with Al Pacino, uh, striking a theme that was recurrent with a lot of the actors he interviewed over the years. Let's take a listen. The past 11 years, it's occurred to me that we ought to have on our stage a wall of fame inscribed with the names of the mothers of our guests mm. who have stepped into the breach in the absence of a father mm. and husband. Does your mother belong on that wall, do you think? Oh, my mom was a great uh, influence on my life, yes. Great. A real encourager in terms of acting, too, because she was a very avid reader and... and, and uh, quite interested in the theater, quite interested in films, of course. Did she work? She worked, yep. Were you at home a lot, alone? I was home alone a lot, yeah. Did you live a lot in your imagination when you were a kid? Yes. And, of course, you know, when my mother took me to the movies, and we didn't have television, and then I'd come home and the next day would enact all the parts of the movie I saw. You would? So it was a way of both, you know, Dealing with the loneliness and the shyness, I also feel, um, I, 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 I've always felt a kind of, um, that I was, I was borderline shy. And so many actors, as you know, Sam, are borderline shy. It's a shock when people find that out, that it's only through this thing called acting that their personalities can be unearthed. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your mom and your dad, uh, because your dad wasn't thrilled with the pursuit uh, that you were choosing, which was, of course, the arts. And your mom was the encourager. Your father was worried that that wasn't a man's man's choice. Uh, he wanted you to be a doctor. Talk about that internal conflict uh, between your mother and father and the role of encourager, because Al Pacino said that word. She was an encourager, and it sounds like your mom was, if anything, an amazing encourager. Well, it's nice to know Pacino and I have that in common because my mother was an encourager and she encouraged me and my brothers to pursue our dreams and to to set goals and to have a plan. There's not much in my life that hasn't been planned, and I think I probably got that from my mother. But my father was probably considered the black sheep of his family because he came from a family of doctors and he was not. He was in the clothing business and was a salesman and did quite well for himself, And but he was traveling a lot and gone a lot. But I was supposed to make up for that. And from the time I was five or six years old, I was told I was going to be a doctor. And my mother 
encouraged me to be a doctor. Obviously, she had gotten her degree in the medical field, too, but to be a doctor only if it's what my heart told me I should do. But at the time, I was a pleaser, and I was encouraged to please as well as encouraged to pursue my dreams. And as a pleaser, I wanted to please my father. My father was a very difficult personality. Um, My parents divorced when I was 16, and my father married the reason for the divorce and moved to Florida, and, and I didn't see him much. My parents, um, during the early years, were very close, and we had a very happy life. I, I think it all started coming unraveled when I was about 10 years old, and the next six years were really tough going into the teen years. And my brothers and I were all just a year apart, so we all kind of went through it at the same time. But in the role of encourager, my mother encouraged me to pursue my dreams. And I was, in 1964, a television nerd. I would walk down the streets of Amory, Mississippi with my TV guide in my hand and tell people what was coming on television. And the number one television show in 1964 was Bonanza. And I would go to the Ponderosa with the Cartwright boys every Sunday night. I thought it was the coolest show on the air. And during that television show, one of its sponsors was Procter & Gamble. And Procter & Gamble had a commercial out advertising cheer detergent. And, of course, my mother used Cheer. It was a very popular brand back then. I think it probably still is today. Mm-hmm. But in the commercial, they had designed a suit, and a man wore this suit with the Cheer logo on it. And he had this funny hat. It was actually a picture of the Cheer man in my book. And he would go from town to town, and if he knocked on your door, as the commercial said, and you could prove that you used Cheer detergent either by showing a box top or a reasonable facsimile, which was basically putting, writing the word cheer on a piece of paper, right. he would give you $10. Well, I was absolutely certain that the cheer man was coming to Amory, Mississippi. But more importantly, the 405 South 3rd Street in Amory, Mississippi, which was my childhood home. So I wasn't content that my mother used cheer. I went down to the local poster shop and bought poster paper and paints and glitter and these designer rocks. And I made this giant cheer sign with the logo from the box and I put it up in my front yard. You know, when I tell this story, people laugh. I go, well, they had to know where to go when I got to Amory. If I have the cheer sign in the front yard, they're going to show up and, and give me the $10. Well, time passed and the sign got rained on and had to come inside. And it was the joke of all jokes among friends in the city, especially my father, who would get in from playing golf and go, hey, Sammy, where's your cheer sign? Ha, 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 ha. I was Sammy in those days. My grandfather was Big Sam. My father was Little Sam, and I was Sammy, and I hated Sammy. And by the time I was in the ninth grade, I dropped the MY and become Sam. But that's another story for another day. But I will tell you this. My grandparents were Sam and Mary Haskell. My parents were Sam and Mary Haskell. My wife and I are Sam and Mary Haskell, and our children are Sam and Mary Haskell. <laughs> so it's not hard to, to miss our names at a family reunion. But anyway, my mother would look my father square in the eye and says, if this child believes a cheer man is coming, then he's coming, and we're not going to hear another word about it. Well, the sign got folded up in my bedroom and then under my bed and into the closet, and a year passed, and it was my middle brother Jamie's birthday on the Friday before Labor Day of 1965. And on any Haskell boy birthday, there was a yard full of boys playing ball and my father grilling burgers and my mother in the kitchen doing the cake and getting everything ready. It was just like the perfect birthday every year. 
And on this particular day in September of 1965, we're playing football in the front yard, and suddenly I hear coming down the street, cheer, cheer, cheer is here, cheer. And I run to the curb, and I look down, and coming up 3rd Street is the little cheer car and the cheer man. And, oh, my God, it's the cheer man. I've got to get my sign. Of course, I'm running inside. My friends are running because they knew the commercial. They ripped the cheer box apart in my mother's laundry room. People are writing it down on notebook paper, cheer, to have their reasonable facsimile. And just as I come out on my front porch and hold up my sign, the car pulls up. I mean, I didn't even think that he might be going to someone else's house. If he was on 3rd Street in Amory, Mississippi, that was it. he was coming to 405. Yep. There was no question at all. And when I held my sign up, he looked at me and said, young man, you get the $10. My father is apoplectic. How is this possible? This kid has been waiting on this chairman for over a year. How is this possible? Now, remember, it's 1965. And the chairman says, well, you see, we've got this new thing called a computer. Now, in 1965, a computer was a refrigerator with blinking lights on it. That's how large it was. That's what it looked like. And into that computer, he said, we put the names of every registered voter in the United States, names and addresses. And 405 South 3rd Street in Amory, Mississippi, was one of the two that kicked out from Monroe County, Mississippi, and it's just taken us this long to get down here. I have to tell you, I learned at age 10 what faith and preparation and hope and belief could mean. And my mother just smiled. Yep. And your dad a little bit, you know, when you bet against people, you actually end up not only rooting against them, but when they get what they want, you're actually not happy. He wasn't. He wasn't. He couldn't believe it. Well, remember what Gore Vidal said? He said, every time a friend of mine succeeds, a little part of me dies. Uh, it tells and you a lot about a, Gore. And that's a terrible thing. It is. But it, it, is. Does, it does tell you a lot about Gore. But my mother had this peace about her with this. She didn't get overly excited. It was just like he knew, she knew, he knew, he, Sam, little Sam, knew the chairman was coming. He believed. And I learned about blind faith that day. Not the kind of blind faith that we learned in Sunday school in terms of our faith, Christian faith, but I learned about preparation and planning and, and understanding. You know, we may not like what we hear or experience on a daily basis, but if we can understand it, we can get through anything. And the understanding I had about that moment was something that set me up for the rest of my life. And, you know, this story, this cheer story is, is one of the, the most important aspects of my selling this book, because I told this story, um, to all the publishers in New York that my agent, it's funny, a former agent saying my agent, but my agent put me in the room with nine publishers and a week after those meetings, I had eight offers, and the book went into auction because people really wanted yeah, That's the power of a story. And again, we're telling Sam Haskell's mom's story here on Our American Stories. And my goodness, the cheer story was worth the stop all alone, Sam. But there's much more to come. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. Thank you. 
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. For the hour, Sam Haskell, talking about his mom, Mary Kirkpatrick Haskell, and his book, Promises I Made My Mother. Go to Amazon.com and order Promises I Made My Mother. What I love about books like this, and what we try to do on this show, is stay away from the daily drumbeat of politics and the news, and do hours that you can play a month from now, a year from now, five years from now. And then we try to tap as often as we can, redeeming and what we call evergreen material here. That is material that lasts a long time. Sam, we were just talking about this pitch that got you this book deal. Tremendous story. Uh, let's talk about the divorce because it's a remarkable story what your mom did after the divorce. She's not young and she has to provide for her family and she does something for, at the time, something pretty radical. Talk about that. Well, my father um, was a very difficult personality and he was not the kind of father after this divorce who allowed us to love them both. We had to choose. And um, there was no choice for me. It was my it was my mother. And she basically was on her own because he went in contempt of court and uh, refused to make the alimony payments and the, uh, the, the child support payments, which my mother had to take into court to be able to take care of us in the style that we had grown accustomed. And suddenly it you know, 17, I found myself the head of the family and both my brothers, you know, would spend their summers with my father and my mother really had this little school job as a school nurse. She was very popular in the town. She was, you know, in the junior league and she was the headroom mother at school. And she had taken a job at the suggestion of the superintendent of schools, a man named uh, Mr. Heyman, Edwin Heyman who loved her and respected her and admired her and thought, I want to have a school nurse. She was one of the first school nurses in the state of Mississippi in a public school system. And it didn't pay very much, but she liked the fact that she had the same holidays we did, same summer off, only worked nine months, and could still basically be mom. And we were you know, young teenagers at the time in middle school and high school, and it, it worked out great. But I was having to supplement um, making the house payments and um, helping, you know, with everything. I mean, everything. I, I, I grew up really quickly. And when I was a junior in high school, I was, I was pretty much the breadwinner. And my mother decided that she was going to go back to school and um, she was going to get another degree so that she could get a higher pay raise. And while I was finishing up at Ole Miss, my mother decided to apply for a scholarship to go to the University of Colorado. And she went back to school in her early 50s and became Mississippi's first school nurse practitioner. Mississippi Governor Bill Elaine did an accommodation for her exceptional you know, career achievements and... Uh, I'm I'm very proud of who my mother was. I remember having to fly to Denver. I'm by this time I'm in the beginnings of my career at the William Morris Agency in Beverly Hills, California, and I flew to Denver to help her study for her finals. Um, you know, she was always there running questions for me when I was a little boy, and so we did a reversal and I was running questions for her. And she graduated at the top of her class. She was always at the top of her class, and she was also filled with class and grace and faith. And I, I loved her dearly and think of her even to this day. 
And that was time in the end for her, too. I mean, this was, you know, as so many moms will do, the time is for their kids, the time is for their husbands. But this was a little real estate for herself, I would suspect. Did she ever talk to you about that? Well, after my brothers and I had finished college and were basically on our own, she needed to do something for herself. And she had always thought of this, but had always put us first. My mother is the kind of mother that if there are six people and only five pieces of pie, she would say, well, I don't really care for pie tonight. And everybody else would get the pie. Right. That's, that's who my mother was. And she loved us more than anything. I mean, she loved us. And one of the great, you know, sadnesses that I have is that she died before my children were born. She did know my wife, Mary, and loved her dearly and was so proud of the couple that we formed when we married in 1982. And my mother was so happy that day and that weekend of that, those wedding festivities and that, that ceremony. Um, and, but I've always been really, really sorry that she didn't get to see my children and now my grandchildren. And I mentioned earlier about April the 3rd, my grandmother Kirkpatrick's birthday. And my mother would take us to the cemetery every April 3rd and tell us stories about our grandmother. Well, my mother died at Easter 30 years ago this year. And our son, Sam the fourth was born at Easter the very next year. And he was born on April 3rd. And I knew in that moment that my mother knew I had worried. So during the pregnancy, Oh, I just can't believe my mother's not going to be here to see this baby. Oh, I can't believe it. She would love this baby so much. Well, he was born on April 3rd and I knew that she had something to do with it. About a year later, we're now pregnant with our daughter, and we are traveling home to Mississippi, which we did a lot, to see my Aunt Betty. The day my mother died, my, my aunt, Betty Kirkpatrick Rogers, became my mother. So she was going to be the grandmother to our children. And so we were flying back with little Sam, and Mary was really big pregnant with our daughter, Mary Lane. And we were on a plane from L.A. to Dallas. When we got off the plane, Sam was really, really fussy. And we went to another terminal to make our connection into Memphis in those days. We didn't have our direct flights on Delta. We had to fly American to Dallas and then connect at DFW into to Memphis. And when we were in the holding area in Dallas, he was so fussy, and we just let him get out of his stroll and run around. There was a little lady sitting in an aqua blue suit. Now, my mother's favorite color was aqua blue, and the curtains in our home were aqua blue, the clothes she wore were aqua blue. We buried her in aqua blue. She loved aqua blue. And he ran up to this little lady. She looked to be about 85 years old and she was in a wheelchair and he started patting her on the knee and she just took his little face in her hand and said, aren't you a beautiful boy? And, you know, we were not really paying attention, but we realized that she was just a really sweet person who had reached out to our, our child. When we got on the plane, as luck would have it, she was seated right next to us. And on the flight from Dallas to Memphis, she had an apple in her purse. And to this day, my son Sam's favorite fruit is an apple. My mother's favorite fruit was an apple. So she's cutting this apple and giving him pieces of it. And he did not whimper a moment. He was sitting in my wife's lap, who was in the middle seat. And she just kept talking about what a beautiful baby we had. At the uh, 
moment that the flight ended, she had to stay in her seat because, you know, they had to come see about her. So we had to wait. And while we were waiting, I was trying to get up to get all the diaper bags and all the stuff that you have to carry when you're on these planes. And she reached out and she said, you have a beautiful little boy. And I noticed that your wife is pregnant. That's going to be a beautiful baby too. Live every day to the fullest. You're going to have a wonderful life. And that's what my mother said to me the whole time and to my brothers. Live every day to the fullest. Well, it just sort of shocked me. And as Mary and little Sam go off and as they take the lady off, I'm getting all the baby paraphernalia and the strollers and everything out of the above head compartments. And I rush out because I, I have to tell Mary what just happened. And I want to see this lady again. And she was gone. And Mary was there and I told her the story and we, we both sort of shed a tear. But I really feel like through my faith and belief that I had a visitation from my mother through that lady that day. And I think people listening are going to think the same thing, Sam. When we come back, more on Sam Haskell's book, Promises I Made My Mother. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we're listening to Bing Crosby singing the song When the Red, Red Robin Comes Bob, Bob, Bombing Along. And Sam, that song has special meaning for you, and we're going to talk, to that, talk about that in a minute. By the way, folks, if you go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and our This Days in History, one of our favorites is the Bing Crosby and David Bowie collaboration on The Little Drummer Boy. And it's a heck of a story, and you'll hear from Bing's relatives and Bowie's relatives about how that song came to be an unlikely collaboration, to say the least, a glam rocker and an old pop crooner, doing a favor in the end for their kids and their relatives, both of them. And uh, Sam, let's talk about uh, that song. Why is it important? You know, as I'm sitting here listening, I thought, that's a God wink. Dolly, Dolly Parton and I are very close and have had many collaborations together, and I represented her for years. We've been friends for over 30 years. And when I heard that, come on with being seen that my mother woke me and my brothers up every morning of our formative years to the red, red Robin. And I thought, wow. And then I realized you just are a good researcher. We try, <laughs> we try, <laughs> but there's a God wink too. There's a God wink. I, I really appreciate it. But every morning of my life, I woke up to the red, red Robin comes Bob, Bob, Bob and along. And you know, we need that stuff. And by the way, that's why we love doing our music segments here on our American stories. Because it's a map of our lives. You know, we did one story, uh, Sam, about uh, a particular fellow who was taking songs to old people who had Alzheimer's, who had not remembered or known anything about their lives. But the second they heard a song, they were suddenly in a place, they were reciting the lyrics. And so we know, and I saw you just light up the second the song came on. So that's always fun to do for folks. Uh, Let's tell a, a story about 
well, it's a tough subject, but we touch it here on this show, uh, suicide, because in the end, your dad, uh, not long after your mom died, uh, killed himself. Uh, talk about that. Well, my parents had been divorced for about 12 years, and they were estranged. They had no relationship at all. My father, as I said earlier, made my brothers and me choose, and I chose my mother. My brothers chose my father, and both my brothers moved to Florida, where my father lived with his new wife. And after they were out of college, they could go anywhere they wanted, and I stayed true to my mother. Well, my mother went through a very difficult time with her cancer. And um, we did everything in our power to save her. We took her to MD Anderson in Houston and had the best doctors available to do all these surgeries. And unfortunately, she just, it was just impossible. And we lost her from start to finish in nine months. Well, the entire time that my mother was sick, my father was telling my brothers that she really wasn't sick. This was just Sam's ploy to get them to come see her because they hadn't seen her in a year. And she died with our family and Amory around her. Mary, my wife, was holding her hand. I was holding the other hand. And she had had zero blood pressure for about 48 hours. And I kept saying to the doctors, why? Why is she still holding on? And he said, she's waiting on your brothers. She's waiting on your brothers. And they didn't come. And I had to tell her they were there. And that's when she finally let go. And um, it was it was very tough. And um, it was devastating not only to our family but to the entire community. The, the church was packed with over 1,000 people at her funeral. And my wife Mary sang her, her favorite songs, and the preacher preached her favorite verses, and it was incredible. My brothers did come to the funeral, but my obviously my father did not. That was on April 20th of 1987, and... On January 20th of 1988, just two months before little Sam was born, my father took his life. And it was nine months to the day that my mother had died. And I had had very little relationship with him because, again, as I said, he made us choose. And I chose my mother. And um, I was very close to my father's sister, my Aunt Marilyn, and her husband, Bill, my Uncle Bill. And so I stayed in touch with them and our cousins, obviously, but my father had no relationship with his sister, no relationship with me or any of his close friends. He had become completely isolated. And I believe that morning of January 20th, 1988, he woke up and looked in the mirror and said, my God, what have I done? And he took his life. And when I was writing the book, one of the things that I've always said to myself, I even as a kid, right after the divorce, I would look in the mirror and say, I am not going to be the typical product of a broken home. I am not. I'm going to be everything I dreamed of being. I'm going to be outstanding. I'm going to be smart. I'm going to win. I'm going to win this life. I'm not going to let this tear me down. And so I focused on everything positive that I could. So in the first draft of the book, I just wrote about positive things. And my editor gets the draft and says, so I guess you think you're perfect. And I went, no, why, why would you think that? Well, I see no mistakes. I see no faults. I see no failures. I see no father. And I went, oh, my God. So I rewrote the entire book based on the principles that my mother had taught me and lessons that she had given me at times of moments that maybe I wasn't making the right choice or moments that I needed to be redirected or I needed some comeuppance in terms of parenting. And 
those lessons were, were such profound messages to me as a kid growing up. And then I used those same principles in my business in California, you know, in the entertainment business. But I didn't mention anything in the original draft about my father's suicide because there was such a terrible stigma attached to it. And I was embarrassed and I, I just didn't think I would mention it at all. Well, they told me I had to, and they wanted to know the truth. And the only way people are going to respond to you is if you tell them the whole truth. I had not even told my children. I mean, Mary knew, but my children did not know. None of my friends in California knew. They all thought he had a heart attack because that's what I told them. So I put it in the book. And I want you to know that in addition to the life lessons that my mother taught me and the stories that I told about Hollywood and growing up in small town Mississippi, small town America, I got over a thousand letters from people thanking me for talking about the suicide. I was able to witness to people completely unknowingly, completely reluctantly, and found that it was something very powerful because people thought if he can go through something like that, I can go through something like that. I think that's true. You know, one of my favorite lines uh, when when Tennessee Williams was buried, and he had written about a lot of painful things, uh, Arthur Miller said he made us feel less alone. And I think in the end, uh, when you bear witness to such things with heart, not exploitatively, um, but just confessionally, um, you're always bringing people closer together. Uh, who felt the same thing. I want to talk about pennies um, because when you look, you, you've done all right for yourself. Um, <laughs> so you're not, you're not picking them up because you need them, but you pick up pennies when you see them. Why? And can we see the vault? Cause I, um, I understand you have a lot of them. I do. I've got jugs and jugs of lucky pennies and I find them almost every day. I say in the book that there's only been one that I didn't pick up. And that was one I saw in a urinal in a men's room. And I almost did, but I just couldn't bring myself to it. But from the time I was about four or five years old, we would walk around the streets of Amory, Mississippi, and my mother would see a penny and go, find a penny, pick it up, and all the day you'll have good luck. And we did that until she died. And then I suddenly started finding even more of them after she died. And I believe, you know, we all have our own methods of thinking about things, but I believe every time I find a penny now, it's my mother sending me a message. And I find these pennies, Lee, and this is what's so amazing. I find them when I'm worried about something. And the penny tells me it's going to be okay. And almost always it is. That is something. And by the way, one of my favorite books, I, I write a lot. And when I'm stuck, I pick up Flannery O'Connor's A Habit of Being. Because for her money, your habits can also determine Absolutely. outcomes. And I don't think as a culture, we tell enough stories to each other, our families, our country. My goodness, my little girl doesn't know anything about World War II yet. And she's now about to go into the seventh grade. How do you not know your own country and not know the Revolutionary War? Um, and these aren't political discussions. These are just things that you need to know about your own country, your own family. And then the habit of telling those stories together and telling them over and over again. You're lucky that your mom you know, instilled this in you, Sam. And, and so the last point here, and we got about a minute and a half to close out. You had this dream, a kid from small town Mississippi, to go out and make something of yourself in this place called Hollywood. And you did it at a level at which few people have ever done in history. And it is an unlikely story. What percentage of this do you attribute to your mom? Well, I give her a great deal of the credit. I also give my wife, Mary, a great deal of the credit. But from my mother's point of view, she believed in me more than anyone until Mary came into my life. And then they had to share. And then, obviously, after my mother died, Mary was my complete support. 
But my mother thought I was so special. And she would tell me every day of my life that I was special. Don't forget you're special. Don't forget. I don't care what anybody says to you. You're special. And when she would correct me, she would say, it's my job to prepare you for your destiny. I know that you've got a great destiny. And it was my mother who instilled in me the faith when everyone else said, oh, my God, what does he think going to Hollywood? He needs to get a job. He needs. He's just finished Ole Miss. He needs to get a job. What's he doing? Get serious. Yeah. This following the yellow brick road to Hollywood. Oh, my God. But my mother said, I believe he can do it. I believe he has the heart, the soul, the faith, the endurance, the perseverance that he can do anything he wants. And I will hold on to that until the day I meet her again. And folks, we can all encourage or we can discourage. There is no middle ground. So choose the side. Our words matter for friends, for lovers, mothers, fathers. If you're listening, you've just heard Sam say it. We hear it over and over again. Heck, we just heard it from Jerry Kramer in our Vince Lombardi Hour. And he was talking about Lombardi and the encourager Lombardi was 30, 40 years after the man had done that encouraging. Sam, thanks for joining us. This is Lee Habib. Sam Haskell's book, Promises I Made My Mother, celebrating the life of Mary Kirkpatrick Haskell, still with us after all these years. Thank you. Thank you.